I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. My guest today is Adam Linforth. Now, he's the owner of an Australian swimwear company. Listen to this. It's called Budgie Smuggler. When the company launched, other businesses were focused on scaling through bricks and mortar retail, whereas Budgie Smuggler was carving out a space online. When other businesses were manufacturing overseas, Budgie remained Australian made. When other brands were focusing on people with perfect physiques, Budgie made it their mission to focus on the ordinary people of all shapes and sizes. So they definitely know a thing or two about doing things totally different. In 2016, nine Aussies stripped down to Budgie Smugglers at the Formula One in Malaysia, which skyrocketed the brand's recognition. Since then, the brand has been seen on the likes of Prince Harry, as well as being a favourite with Aussie athletes. We talk about how he has used influencers in the past to tell his story about the Budgie Smugglers, not just for your chiselled bronzed Aussie, but it's for everyone. We will be talking about social media and we will be talking about brand recognition. We're going to be talking about manufacturing. But what's really important here is I want to see how Adam's life, those things that influenced him in growing up, have actually transpired into who he is and who Budgie is becoming today and where does he want to take it for the future. It's a really good story, actually. It's very, very interesting. It's interesting to see the progress of Australian entrepreneurs from their very, very humble start to becoming what is now an iconic Australian brand. And to some extent, this brand, I see it as becoming iconic Australian brand in other jurisdictions like the UK and France. So let's get into it. Adam Linforth, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm dying to talk about uh, the budgie smuggler, particularly the ones I'm looking at at the moment. It's a pair of uh, Roosters branded or Roosters licensed, NRL licensed uh, Budgie smugglers, swimmers. I'm a Canberra Raiders supporter, so it's slightly painful for me to, to look at them at the moment. Well, you guys beat us this year so, so far, so... Uh, yeah, I would have taken the grand final last year, but um, such is life. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe Ricky Stewart sort of felt that soft spot for us last year and just, <laughs> even though, because he, he was one of our coaches, I mean, too, I guess. Too soon. <laughs> All right, it's, it still hurts. Anyhow, let's just talk about, I mean, I, I don't want to talk about budgie smugglers just yet. I, I mean, I've, I've got some good... Uh, merchandising is sitting here right in front of me. I've got a pair of um, girls gym shorts. Girls gym shorts. It says budgie smugglers with coconuts all over them. And this is a uh, a face mask, 
which we're going to talk about why you are now doing face masks, and that's a bit of a pivot story. Yep. And then we've got a, a, a towel and a, a the, and the swimmers themselves, which no one's getting the swimmers. They're mine, okay, because they've got the rooster <laughs> sign on. But let me just go back a bit. Um, I'd say you're like your early 30s maybe. Oh, thank you, mid-30s. Mid-30s. Yeah, 30, just 35 recently. Okay, I want to I go back a little bit because uh, I really got to get my head around how this all started. When you're sort of in your teens, what was your deal? Like, what's your family situation? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so Sydney boy, family's originally from sort of Campbelltown. So mum's from Poland, dad's from uh, South Australia. But I grew up mainly sort of North Shore, Northern Beaches. You got that look, the Polish look. Yeah, you, you, yeah I can see that. Yeah, yeah totally. A- you got the blonde hair and the and you got, you got that sort of face shape. Yeah, so no, mum came out to Australia when she was about 14. She's been a big um, influence on on my life and budgie smuggler, and I think it's maybe a bit of a secret advantage having a parent from overseas. And you know, they grew up in a one room house on the outskirts of Warsaw, no running water, minus thirty degrees, need to go to the toilet outside, sort of thing. Have you been to Warsaw? So, yeah, 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 quite a few times. We've it's actually pretty weird, eh? It's because uh, so you can still see all the communist stuff going. Where all the buildings, the old communist buildings, and what, what they built like fifty years it's ago. It's like changing like so fast. We've still got a little. Uh, village where she's her family's originally from and you go there and they still it's like a time warp still got the the horse and cart um all the neighbors sort of talking on the on the street um and then warsaw is like yeah this real mix of the kind of communist past but then like a radically it's it's the economy's been growing at a at a great rate of knots so there's this modern influence as well i remember one of my cousins talking about like when mcdonald's first came and like that just being the most mind-blowing thing but yeah it's interesting hearing when mum grew up, there was one type of sugar, one type of milk. Um, so Poland's changed a lot and, and the world too, I guess. It's, I, I, I've been there. I went there with a good friend of mine, Nick Politis, and I went we went there. I mean, it was just it was, it was a whim, whimsical thing. Yeah. And we were in Warsaw and um, it was about maybe um, maybe 10 years ago. But the thing that struck me is that um, I could sort of smell the character. I could smell the the shit they'd gone through, you know, they're, they're tough sort of mothers. You know? Yeah. We went to the Jewish uh, quarter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that was heavy. Um, it just, I could just feel, felt very heavy when I was there. Like, uh, I don't know, there's a feeling about the joint. Yeah, everyone's got a brutal past. Like, mum's uncle escaped um, from a prison called Stalingrad Luft Three, which was made famous in the movie The Great Escape. Um, but he got recaptured and, and killed at the orders of Hitler. So, wow. um, you know, that... That's not a. That's just a normal story. They just kind of, you know, get on with it, sort of thing. Yeah, so. as I said, they really are seriously tough. I, okay, that's like I mean, that. That's important because I mean that sort of things uh, form the fabric of who you are. I mean, I, I guess you got your dad's side too. I mean, and but your kid grew up in Campbelltown, right? Uh, no, I got can't claim Campbelltown. For no? me. we we uh, moved to moved to the UK very briefly, and then by the time I'd started primary school, we were across in um, with my dad's family. So they were in um, Taramara and then moved to Manly after that. And mum's family was out in Liverpool, so southwest Sydney. Yeah, yeah so you had, a cro- you, had, you had some cross sort of fertilisation. I mean, you're up on the northern beaches, but you're also being reminded by your mum's family what it's really like. Oh, yeah, it's 10 degrees hotter out west. I remember, yeah. And 10 degrees colder too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in yeah. The winter. So, so I, was, uh, I was happy to make the shift to the beaches, definitely. <laughs> and when you were growing up, what would, like as a teenager, what would have been your major influence, like uh, in terms of, you know, where you think you are today. I mean, what are the sorts of things that you saw or did or engaged in or experienced, good or bad, that sort of, you know, put it right into you, one day I'm going to run my own business? Yeah, so, I mean, growing up, so dad was a, was an engineer and so I always liked kind of building things. 
Um, mum was a tax accountant and that wasn't, wasn't something, uh, ironically, I did do um, accounting and finance and an arts degree as well at uni. But um, growing up, I wasn't really thinking about starting my own business. So I went to university. I'd actually never really been to a university before. It was just sort of the, the thing that my parents had, had done. So I went to Sydney University, um, did an arts commerce degree then. Safe thing was to go and get a job at a bank. Um, this is like 2007. So this was pre-GFC. So I got a job as a graduate at ANZ. And I thought that that was the safe way to a uh, you know, career and, and pathway. And then the GFC happened. And coming into work each day, they were like firing whole floors of people. Like it was extraordinary at the time. And I was the, you know, a graduate and one of the cheapest. So, you know, you're one of the people that they retain. But I just, just saw all these people going out the door, um, you know, on a, based on a spreadsheet or however they do it. And they sent me during this period to a careers fair at DYRSL. And I'm sitting at this career fair. The bank has a hiring freeze for the whole bank. So it's, you know, pointless in my eyes, but they're like, you know, you're just giving information about it. And I sat there and there was about 25 people that came through, but a few of them were Are you like, saying, the career fair, were you saying ANZ had a kiosk there? A kiosk. Where, you know, if you're looking to have a career, you can walk through the ANZ kiosk because it's the thing you have to do. And speak about what it's like to have a career at the and bank. And did you have to speak about it? So I'm there, I'm like 22 years old like in a suit that I've just got from Maya, speaking about a career at the bank. And I remember all these, you know, folks coming through mainly in their sort of probably late 30s, 40s. And some of them were in like nearly in tears breaking down and they're like, mate, I'm qual- I just need a job. And so for all my life, I'd thought that working for a big company was the safe way to go. And all of a sudden it became quite clear and apparent to me that working for a big company is actually one of the least safe things you can do in a lot of ways. Especially if you're at the bottom of the rung yeah. or not that important to the, the, the business. That's it. So I thought, well, maybe I want to have the keys to the bus and do my own thing and, and, and not be at someone else's mercy. And also at the same time, if I am starting a business, to, to really look after the people as well and, and not be like that. That's interesting because uh, – we talk about the COVID period now and how it's been a, it's a bit of a drama for um, the job and or jobless. But if you go back 12 years the GFC, 2008, which a lot of young people haven't never experienced it. Like mm. if you're in your 20s, you weren't, you, you weren't trying to get a job in that period. Yeah. Um, today, if you're in your 20s today, you were not in your, you, you haven't experienced that. But there was a lot of bloodshed around the GFC. And you're right, all the big organisations just said, that's it, freeze. Yeah. We're not, we're not employing anybody else. Our revenues, we're worried about our revenues, so what we're going to do is reduce our cost line. Yep. So not only are we going – I remember at one stage there, one of the banks, I can't remember which one it was, announced that they're going to get rid of 5,000 people. Yeah. Like just 5,000. It's hard to figure out which 5,000. Totally. But that causes a great deal of stress and anxiety, and you never really know where you sit. And by the way, it's not just the people low down the rung. It's they got rid of CEOs and Mm. every – like, I don't – and you wonder who are these – faceless people who make these power decisions about who the hell to, who is going to get punted. Absolutely. And I was saying, you know, people that I knew that were sort of five, 10 years older getting the punt. And I thought, oh, you know, they're actually doing pretty good at their jobs. There, there wasn't, you know, when they, you pick 5,000, there's some bloodshed that's maybe doesn't seem justified. So, so that was the inflection point. Yeah. That's when I was like, I want, I want to try and think about doing my own thing. So like, do you think that 
Was your dad an engineer working for an engineering organization or was he like an engineer consultant engineer? So dad uh, worked for a company called, still does kind of, Sinclair Knight Mertz. So I think that was a big influence as well. So when he started there, um, there was about 150, 200 of them. And then eventually they sold that business about five years ago to Jacobs, but the, which is a big, en- huge um, engineering firm. But by that point, they had about 6,000 staff in the business and dad had like a, a small shareholding um, in that. But I think that probably influenced me quite a lot as well that, you know, they'd grown that business and sort of earned more money from being a shareholder in the business than a salary necessarily. So equity. Equity. So I kind of, you know, subliminally probably picked up um, some of these things. And he also talked very fondly about how they'd built the business when recessions happened, that they'd sort of try and look after the people, maybe go to four days a week or that sort of thing. And I, I quite admired that um, mindset that they that they had. It was like almost a, you know, a big extended kind of family um, sort of business. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I mean, I find it really difficult during the GFC. I found it very difficult because I had businesses and I found find it very difficult during the COVID period because I control businesses or made shoulder businesses. But at least the decision-making process as to who has to go mm. or who takes a pay cut, including myself, or what sacrifices we have to make generally yeah. within the business, I'm part of the decision-making. Yeah. And uh, I feel a lot better about it um, as opposed to if I was in an environment like I used to be at General Electric where those decisions get made by people I don't know who the fuck yeah, they are. Overseas, I mean, I mean, I've been through that process. During the GFC, GFC uh, GE was my partner. General Electric and I were in partnership together and we had businesses all around the world. And um, in, in particular, in India. Um, so Packer and I, James and I had 40% of the business and GE had 60% of the business. And now, you know, like I thought the business was doing really well in India. Like mm. we had 50 branches throughout India and, you know, 500 staff. And um, GFC hit. And G just said we're out. Yeah, we're, we're, and I don't, and like and all the people I was used to dealing with, like at a, at a sort of a, a senior level at GE, all just disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah, they they all got made redundant themselves. And I'm talking about CEOs of major divisions of General Electric globally, right? They just retired, and then I tried to contact. I couldn't even find them. I couldn't even contact them anymore. Like, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I felt like people were dropping in uh, CFOs in Black Hawk. <laughs> helicopters into into various parts of where we were operating in and they just and people I didn't know or I'd never met before and they just took control of everything and again I, I mean I, I felt that same um, um, sense of uh, A, uselessness yeah, but B also uh, I, I didn't have control of what was going on around me because, only because I just didn't know why they were making these decisions and we're partners yeah they were making their decision but that 60% without you know, I'm only forty percent, but at sixty percent, their decision basically determined which way we're going to go, and I didn't know what was driving their decisions, and that that's a shit place to be. So I'm never going to be in that position again. I made a decision back in two thousand and eight about that. So you're saying the same thing happened to you, but yeah. in, in a, probably in a, a sort of a, a less um, acute way. Exactly. But as a twenty eight year old, twenty. No, I was twenty two. Twenty two. So like, I just I just started. Like I'd been there. Six sort of months, and then soon after that, yeah, sort of budgie came along. Did and you talk to your parents about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually quit quit my job at the bank to go and work for AIM, which is the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. That's 
bit out there. Yeah. From Bank 2. Yeah, so when I was at university, uh, one of my best mates there, like Jack Manning Bancroft, Aboriginal bloke, started a mentoring program for Aboriginal high school kids. I was working in that and like as a, as a volunteer sort of mentor. And then when he finished uni, he'd set it up and was looking to grow it from a group of kids in down the road here in, in Redfern to Wollongong and then eventually around Australia. And he's like, I need some help with the, the sort of accounts. Would you be able to help? And so I thought this would be a great step to um, having a, a kind of part-time job while spending more time on Budgie Smuggler. But that ended up um, going from inverted commas a four day four days a week to being like a 60 70 hour a week job we grew the program from 100 kids in one area to over 5,000 kids nationally and um, they were Aboriginal kids mainly from low socioeconomic schools and the goal was for them to complete high school at the same or higher rate the non-Aboriginal kids which which we did why is that important to you can you explain it to me is it just because you want to have an impact on something, on something, or you have, I want to have an impact on Indigenous kids. Yeah, it was, it was around Aboriginal kids. I'd, um, growing up, uh, like late in high school, learned a bit more about my dad's family. Is your dad Aboriginal? No, so, well, so we basically found out about Aboriginal people in our family, but not knowing, um, not knowing anything about it. And it was a weird story. I was on a train home one day and this bloke came up to the Aboriginal bloke and he's like, mate, where are you from? And I was like, what are we? And he's like, no, where are you from? And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And he said, when you go home, he goes, go home and ask your family where you're from. Cause I look just like you. And I was the only Aboriginal kid that went to school at Normanhurst boys. And I was like, what's he talking about? And so I went home and told my grandpa the story. On your dad's side? On my dad's side. And he goes, oh, go and speak to my sister. So I spoke to her and she was like, oh, look, yeah, when we were at home in Adelaide. Your sister or his sister? His sister. So yep. she's, she's still around. Great Arnie. Arnie. Arnie Joyce, she's around. She's about 90. Hello, Arnie Joyce. Hello, Arnie Joyce. And uh, she was like, yeah, we told a story coming home in, in Adelaide and there was um, Aboriginal people there. She's my mum and dad. Aboriginal people there. And they're like, oh, they're your, they're your uncles and, and your aunties. So I've actually never properly found out about that link. But it definitely, from that age onwards, I was like, my, my ear again? was open, like 15, 16. Yeah. My ear was open and I, I wanted to know more about Aboriginal culture. And it's been a very important influence on my life. So I mean, I'm going to ask you the obvious question. Like, have you got an Aboriginal uh, design budgie smugglers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got, uh, I think we were one of the, the first groups to put the Aboriginal flag on a pair. And we work with a few different Aboriginal artists who, who all earn a, a royalty off the sale of, of their designs. There's a great one at the moment, Charlie Wanty, girl from Queensland that we're, um, that's doing well. Very cool. Very cool. That's something I didn't expect to hear. Mm. That's great. I mean, it's, it's amazing. that So they're two big influences. Your, your mum's Polish and then your dad's mixed, an Australian mix. And yeah, probably... so I don't, I don't, I don't know is, is, the, is the answer. So yeah, I've never the... made, made that connection and, and I certainly – him and, and myself didn't grow up with it. And, and my grandpa said, you know, mate, we just didn't think about it then. So, you, you know, it's just something that's, that's come up more lately, I guess. But um, so we I'll guarantee you, I'm going to guarantee you, before you hit 40 years of age, you will get some sort of search done because it's going to eat away at you. You're going to need to know. Oh, I hope so. Take me, take me into, I mean, you did mention it. Um, you thought of using the AIM experience and or job mm. 
um, as an adjunct to budgie smugglers. So there's, so I presume what's happening here is that uh, in this 22-year-old period, 22 yeah. to 23, 4, the budgie smuggler thing came up. Yeah. So how did it come up? Like where did it come from? So I was, um, I first saw a pair of budgie smugglers on a beach, like the like with budgie smuggler written on the back, on a beach in Mexico. So <laughs> I, uh, yeah. So I'd done a round the world kind of trip. I was going to college in America, University of Arizona, on exchange. On the way through, went through Europe and did a Croatia, like a sail Croatia thing. Before it was just when like. You'd, there was huts there and you'd go and speak to different people and barter to get on a boat. And I was with this Canadian bloke I was at, at uni with Eric and he goes to me before the trip, he's like, look, Adam, I've got this um, tradition that my friends and I have when we're on, on holiday. It's a bit weird, but would you be interested? And I said, oh, what's that? And he's like, we get the most fluoro-offensive speedo-style swimwear we can and a kind of novelty hat and that's all we wear for the week. And I was like, Eric, I'm in. So we did that. And still was, an Aussie, what hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had a like, so that kind of got into me that that you know it's a great conversation starter and that sort of thing. Fast forward on a beach in Mexico, and at this point in time, uh, like board shorts were past the knee. It was uh, speedos or budgie smugglers were, were not really a thing. And I saw these three blokes, and they had these fluoro yellow pairs with budgie smuggler, not even a logo, just the word written on the back. And I got talking to them. They were from the Romano's Hotel water polo team in Wagga. <laughs> and I just thought it was, the name was great. It made me laugh. And it happened that I knew the bloke who was sort of managing the, the business. And so when I got back to Australia, I hit him up and I'm like, mate, if you need to help with anything, I'm in. And so they were running the city to surf in them a couple of, Weeks later, I just wanted a free pair. And he's like, well, if you run the city to surf in them, you get a free pair and a couple of beers. And, and I was in and that's it. I just started helping him out. And then maybe another 12, 18 months after that, ended up with the keys to the bus. You bought it? I bought it, yeah. Let's go to the break. We'll come and come back because I want to find out <laughs> what motivated you to buy it. And we're going to talk about this business called Budgie Smuggler. Okay, I'm back with Adam Lindforth, the chief smuggler or the CEO of Budgie Smugglers, whichever one you choose, which one <laughs> you want, but he's the guy. And uh, we just established um, sort of, we went through his story as to how he got involved with Budgie Smuggler, but or how the inspiration to get involved with Budgie Smuggler came about. And it was one of those sort of random um, things that just happened in life, And uh, but he took the opportunity. But I guess we just glossed over a little bit how he mm. ultimately, as he's put it, ended up with the keys to the business. Um, yeah. And it happened over a 12-month period. First off, you started just trying to help out, but then you ended up owning the business. But just talk about the intervening period. Yeah. So originally, I think I was still working. Yeah, I was still working at ANZ, looking for something else to do and seeing this, these pairs and just thought it was, I loved it. You know, I got it. So I was just helping him out, running the odd errand just for volunteer sort of stuff. Not doing too much. I, I did do remember doing the odd um going out to the factory in Marrickville to pick the stuff up. It was Australian made, which I really liked. And then the main owner of the business was a bloke, Lockie Harris. 
So Lockie had actually become Kevin Rudd's press secretary. Kevin 07. Kevin 07. He, he came up with Kevin 07. Isn't Lockie Harris the guy behind uh, the big switch? He does one big switch. One big switch, yeah. I think he co-founded Get Up as yep. well way back. So, yeah, he's a creative guy. And the family's Harris Farm Markets, the yep. greengrocers. Of course. So Lockie had it and his cousin Dave. So I knew his, his younger cousin um, Dave who was doing the day-to-day of the business. But at this stage – um, they were selling, you know, maybe a dozen pairs a week sort of thing. So it was kind of in our group of mates. Call it a cottage business at that stage. Y- yeah. And so but a bit of a fucking fun thing. Like let's, let's do something crazy. I thought it was funny. The whole, the premise of the brand was just loose, like get in and go to cargo bar. That was the band. So Lockie was going through the election and they were long shots at the, at the start, but he's like, if we win the election, um, I'll probably move it on. And if we don't win the election, I'll go into doing it full time. So they won the election, but he still held on to the business for a bit. And there was actually three of us looking to, to go in. Um, and he said the amount of money he wanted and we all sort of balked at it and didn't quite, didn't have it either. And then sort of six months later, by this stage, I'd saved up a bit more money, but not, not the whole amount. And it wasn't a crazy amount of money. We're talking like a couple of years salary for a graduate at the time, but that was a lot more than the company was turning over and the business was making a loss. And this is when making a loss for a business wasn't as cool as it is now. But yeah, about six months down the track, his cousin who was running it wanted to move overseas. And Lockie called me one morning, I was hung over. And he's like, Adam, like, you know, Dave's moving away. I need to sell the business. This is how much I want. I need to fly out tomorrow with the prime minister. Can you give me an answer today? <laughs> And I was like, I was like, oh God. So um, I didn't have all the money, so I had to borrow the money. This is in interest rates were like eight percent. The bank would not give me the money. Of course. So I was lucky enough to be able to hit up my my parents and and my dad at the time didn't think it was necessarily the most sensible idea, but my mum actually really loved it and thought she just loved the name Budgie Smuggler. Like when she explains it to her friends, like in Polish. She just can't stop cacking herself. So she she was like, yep, we'll, we'll back him. And they didn't have the money either. So they had to um, draw down on their mortgage um, to do it. And then they lent the money to to me. And I I thought I'd be able to pay him back in a couple of years, but it took about 10. So it then became a very expensive hobby for about five or six years. But after about five years it started to, to catch on. So I think in the first year, it did about 1,000 units and it took five years to get to 10,000 units a year. And then another five, we had kept the same growth rate. So we did like 10 years at 40 to 80%. And I just knew that I could hang in there in that sort of 50, 60% growth rate. I could fund it myself and that, you know, I was 23. So, you know, look at companies like, Big companies in the world like Henry Ford started at 44. Yeah. The Macca's bloke was 55. I was like, you know, I've got a, yeah, I got a, good, I got a good head start on them. Um, so, yeah, from took five years to go from 1,000 units to 10,000. The next five was the same growth, but we went from 10,000 to 100,000 units a year. Let's just unpick the business a little bit. So apart from the swimmers, um, there's, you know, you've got a number of items, number of SKUs that you, you sell, yep. um, some of which are in front of me here now. Where do you manufacture? And why do you manufacture where you manufacture? 
Yeah, so we manufacture here in Sydney, not far, like St. Peter's, Marrickville. That's where most of the manufacturing's. Why? Why they're there? Not China, whatever. Cu- couple of things. One is I like making things. There's something satisfying, you know, and also if there's a problem like quality-wise, you know where it comes from. We know who's made it exactly. We can go there and we can, we can solve the problems. Challenge with making overseas is the stuff comes in, you've got to buy thousands of it um, at a time, and if it's wrong, you know, there's a long lag between when you can make them again. So n- number one was around quality. So we could control the quality of the manufacturer. I like making things. And I think the other thing is like when you put a pair on, like it's an iconic Australian name, I want people to feel something and I I want them to. Hopefully it's not a budgie in there. (laughs) I I want them to feel like, you know, they're they're almost putting on a piece of Australia and that they're proud of it. And I want something that I'm proud of. And I feel that making it in Australia helps with that. And in the long run that people can kind of feel that. And there's not a lot of stuff that's made in, in Australia anymore, but there's some really good, you know, R.M. Williams belts and shoes or something, a product that I like, Ugg boots. So we do have some stuff that's quintessentially Australian. And I've seen all the guy, you know, Speedo moved overseas a long time ago, but that's obviously a, a great Australian brand. But that was always going to, because that was owned by Entrad, which was um, um, Abe Goldberg, and they're always going to they're always going to manufacture overseas and end up actually end up having someone overseas will own it because it was a big, big, big business Entrad. Absolutely, but I think but that's an opportunity for you too, by the way. I think I've seen a lot of the smaller and some of them quite big, you know, move. I feel like the last bloody samurai of swimwear, you know, like everyone just keeps going away each, each year. Like the last big one to go was sort of sea folly three or four years ago. Um, we were originally in the bonds factory, um, was where we got our stuff sort of cut and printed. And, you know, they used to make 17,000 singlets a day in that, in that space. So it's been, been a bit sad seeing a lot of it move away. Funny thing is that we're all talking about bringing everything Everyone's back. coming back. Yeah, yeah. If you try and like, all these people that were um, on death's door, and, and fortunately a lot of them have, have, have closed, but a lot of them are still around, and their inquiries at the moment are through the roof. For your product? Well, for people wanting to make swimwear in Australia. Right, right. Yeah, the inquiries and everything. And one of the big changes, well, there's been a couple of big changes. Actually, manufacturing has got a lot more advanced. And so say like a pair of... Um, swimwear like we make in the old days, you'd have the roll of fabric. You'd need someone with a saw to cut it. Then you'd need two different people to plastisole kind of a heat press machine down to put the logo on or the print. So now how we do it is we've got these wide printers that print each unit individually, and then it feeds straight into a laser cutter, which then cuts each thing out individually. And then all you need to do at the end is, is sew it. So the cost of manufacturing in Australia with the increase in automation has gone down dramatically. So as an example, we've got a cutter, Wayne, who's been with us since the start, 15 years. And he now runs our laser cutting machines and he can cut three times as much as he used to more accurately. And so he's a, you know, triple the value. Probably less wastage too. Much less wastage. Everyone's sort of jigsawed in. Um, so there's 
there's very little wastage. And also before, because the, the hand had some human error, you had to print a bleed around all the garments, all that's um, reduced. So you get about 20% better yardage. So it's much more efficient, much cheaper, therefore, much faster. You can probably run it 24 hours a day. You can, yeah. You can leave the printers on uh, overnight. The lasers, just got to keep an eye on them so nothing sets fire. Um, but, but yeah, it's become radically cheaper. So it's, it's heavily automated. So I, I think we will see a shift to more manufacturing done. It would have been great if a few more could have held the line, but um, it, it'll, it'll swing back. And so you manufacture here. What about design? Like, I mean, I see this one here. This one's a, an NRL licensed one. These pair of budgie smugglers here, it's, it's got the Sydney Roosters on, which is obviously you know, for my benefit. Um, but what you're trying to do is get rugby league players and or when they get their shorts pulled down, they've got a pair of budgie smugglers on. Or alternatively, if I get under the beach, I'm going to wear a pair of these because I'm proud that we, you know, we won two grand finals in a row. So... Who designs this stuff? Who comes up with the ideas? What's your design process? So a lot of the ideas uh, just come like originally it was just people suggesting them at the pub sort of thing, you know, oh, you need to do a, a stripe pair or flag pairs. That was, you know, a lot of the Aboriginal boys were like, mate, we want to we want pair with the, uh, to represent. It was just, pe- and you know, social media, people send in um, different ideas. A lot of what we do is customised swimwear as well. So about a third of the business is, making swimwear for mainly rugby league, AFL, rugby union um, clubs. We've got girls swimwear as well. Yep. So that's uh, women's sevens rugby and women's AFL. It's been huge uh, with the girls getting on board for that. So another thing that we've kept in-house is there's a temptation, I think, to you know get your design done by a, a contractor or on one of these apps. But we've actually we got like 10 full-time staff, four are designers. So we've got a team that are focused on producing designs and we want when you look at it to sort of like smile and nod sort of thing, like, mm. oh, you know, like when you, a really good design comes through, like yeah, you feel something. So that's what we're trying to create in, um, in each of the designs. Well, what's the market here for that style of swimming? And by the way, will you make board shorts as well? <laughs> Curtains of shame. <laughs> no, never. Blas- okay, blasphemy. Well, we won't even touch on that. So let's just look at the at the budgies themselves. Um, what's the market here for that now? Like in terms of, and who are they? I mean, who wears this? Is it just the cheeky bastards who uh, want to run around with the the bright fluoros on with a hat and and take <laughs> the piss out of something that's going on? Run around at Watson's Bay Hotel, ten of them are on a bucks party, yeah. or I mean, or is it for people who want to use it for training? Yeah, is it is it a big training aspect, or is it for surf club? guys who want to, you know, win the Cole Classic. Yeah. Who, who are we talking about here? Yeah, so there's been a bit of a shift over the time. I think early on, uh, you know, 10 years ago, it was kind of quite quite taboo. Board shorts were past the knees, mainstream, wearing smugglers wasn't quite re- – was, you're on the fringe. You normally you're the guy standing on the rock with a whole lot of oil on you, coconut oil and your hair slicked back that- and you, you're standing there – you might be of a European descent or something. You know, <laughs> they stand with the chest pitched out. That yeah? was that was the uh, that was the image. All the all the older fellas sitting yeah, yeah, there yeah, at Bronte yeah, Park. Yeah, totally. Just just leather leather like skin. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So part of what we had to do at the beginning was change that perception of yeah, who. Well, of I who, how are you doing that? Of who wears it? So the focus, and also you know, this was just a, an interest for me. So we focused the business on people that you wanted to have beers with. Yeah. And it didn't matter what they look like. If they had a, you know, they're in good nick, great. If they didn't, 
not an issue at all. We wanted the person in a sporting team that's singing the team song at the end. And we've kind of felt if we could get them on board, then they'd have the the social clout within the group. So probably one of the best examples is Georgie Rose, who used to play yep. for, for Manly and was a, a pretty solid unit. He's a giant now. He's, he's a big... He's a big boy and a beautiful human. But uh, George, so George was playing at Manly and they'd actually been sponsored by another um, swimwear brand who went in and they only gave pairs to the good looking players, inverted commas, yeah, in the team. Like Matt Cooper type of. Yeah, yes. Wolfman back in the yeah. day and that. And George was there, you know, in the fat corner and sort of saying, this isn't right. And so he called me up and so I drove around to, to George's house and got him some some pairs, and he went on by the end of the season to have most of the players in the team wearing it. And there's a couple of things that happened with that. One was that George used to get his pants dacked during the game quite often, and so the commentators started talking about which pair he was wearing. But I think that was the start of changing the perception around, you know, what body shapes could wear that, and we we went even harder at that later around we had a competition or have a competition, which is Australia's most ordinary rig. So it's like Miss World meets Victoria's Secret pageant. And we try and find the most ordinary shaped bloke in Australia. And we fly them in from around Australia. Yeah. And we really look after them and treat them like, you know, the, the sort of heroes that, that, that they should be and celebrate that versus what everyone else was doing, which was around, you know, blokes that were chiseled. Were, were chiseled. I think also like there's an issue with the the whole chisel thing. You know, Instagram was becoming big at this time. And I remember some kids like Western Suburbs kids came into the office and they were going to schoolies. They were like, oh, we can't wait. We've been getting so shredded. I was like, oh, no, like shredded for schoolies, like 17-year-olds. And I'm like, we got to try and do something to change the perception around what's important. And for us, that was around the kind of person that you were, that you, you know, good to have beers with rather than just, I'm the most shredded kid at schoolies. Yeah. Well, which is, which is all wrong and totally pressured. Yeah. It's probably what was happening. What's been happening with girls for a, for a very long time. And again, with our smuglets, our girls range, it's smuglets. not, a, it's a, it's a focus on, you know, what, what the people are like, not exactly, um, a particular body, body shape, but you know. Women's swimwear, pretty much all of them are kind of cookie cutters if you look on Instagram at the type of type of body shapes that, that they're promoting. So do you, yeah. do you rail against that though, Adam? I mean, do you do you use Instagram to turn that around and sort of get influencers on there that uh, aren't playing the game? Not on our high horse like, um, but just by doing it, you know, don't 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 say it, do it. So it's it's around people having a good time in them. And if if that's happening, doesn't it doesn't matter the shape people will, will seal that they'll feel something um, and hopefully want to be a part of it I, I can't go much forward without uh, looking at um, what's in front of me this this uh, face mask mm -hmm. obviously that's a, that's an opportunity for for an opportunistic sell because you know face mask are important you've got you've also got the ability to design and manufacture I mean that's that's your game I yeah mean, that's pretty pretty fortunate you know yeah, that we, totally. could, we could make them and turn them around at a time where well, how'd you do it? Like, I mean, what, what, what made you think about doing these things? Because we've only been in the pandemic for like, you know, not even six months yet, but you've now got this product out there. How did it work? Yeah. So like straight away, we, 
we pivoted to, I guess, to some of our manufacturing to be able to make them. But everything kind of calmed down here in Australia. And then in the UK, so we've got, now we've got the business here in Australia. And then we've also got a team of uh, four in the UK that run the UK and Europe. But they weren't all, they weren't recommending them. So they kind of sat on the shelf for, for quite a while. Now, Boris Johnson is recommending it. Exactly. And then so since then, we now sell more masks than, than swimwear. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to do with it was there's a bit of like people a bit uncomfortable wearing the masks and some of them look a bit sort of scary. So we wanted to make something that was, that was practical but looked good I guess as well, so that and, and people would be more inclined to wear it. It's washable, I guess. I mean, yeah, they're washable and reusable. It, and feel, it feels like swimwear. It feels like uh, yeah. Swimming. So the outer layers are like a like a thicker swimwear fabric, and then the inner layers uh, got a got a lining to it as well. So it's double lined. Now they're recommending triple lined. So we're shifting to a another level. Um, and if you put them on, you can't. You're going to be lucky to blow out a candle in them. It looks good too. Yeah, that's part of it as well. It's something that, that looks good. So we've had a huge amount of custom orders from it, including um, some like different government organisations and that. How they're wearing it is with the with the paper, the end, proper N95 masks, which are very thin, yep. and then they'll put our one over the top so it's got their their branding of their organisation. Can, can you design one with a big smile on it? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, so it looks like someone's smiling. I mean, that's fucking mad. Yeah, we've got some people's faces, people like their dogs on the front. What else have we seen? Uh, don't be a Karen is one yeah, of yeah, the Yeah, don't be um, Karen. I feel so sorry for anyone whose name is Karen, by the way, because uh, that's just like now not cool to be a Karen. Oh, there's a thing on uh, Today or Sunrise the other day, and there was a few Karens on, and, and they took it in very good. Very good humour. There's a lot of tough, good Karens out there. So, well, totally. I, actually, the ones I knew at school were always pretty tough. They're still pretty tough. Can I? Can I just quickly go through your range? So, we've got the actual traditional budgie smugglers. We've yep. got a we've got a towel. We've got these uh, ladies' um, gym shorts or whatever you want to call them, just hanging out shorts, but they're made of lycra or something like that. Yep. What else? And apart from the face masks, what what other things have you got in your ranges? Or is this, this is your range? Sure. So this is our main sort of range. That's you got uh, your ladies' swimwear. Yeah. So ladies, ladies' swimwear. Um, men's smugglers, um, towels, and we've got some underwear and socks and some basic shirts. Are you taking on Aussie Bum? I mean, it, I mean, in terms of market share, I mean, that they got that's one I think of apart from Speedo. That's one I think of who is Australian. I don't know if they still own it here in Australia or not, but uh, is that one of the proxies for you? Uh, prob- probably, um, they're quite a different, different brand to us. I- I'd say the biggest challenge for us or competitor is, is board shorts or people just not wearing um, so it's attitude wearing smugglers so yeah. it's shifting that that attitude which we're a long way ahead in Australia in the UK um, they're starting to the perception there is starting to starting to change um, France is our third biggest market and that's that they don't require too much encouragement yeah. we've just started a French Instagram page and I just it warms my heart like seeing them just circuiting, champagne showering and smugglers and smugglets, it's, they get it. Um, well, what is it about the Australian psyche? Are we conservative? Is that what the deal is? I mean, is it? No, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's pretty normal now at a lot of the beaches. You'll see people wearing these not as, uh, trying to stand out. They've just figured that, you know, smuggling, the smuggling way of life's the better way of life. Like compared to shorts, if you go to the extreme of 
shorts past the knees, you know, there's a reason women don't wear board shorts and it's because it's just not as, um, They're wet and uncomfortable, wet, wet and uncomfortable. Why stop at shorts? You may as well wear jeans, you know? I mean, I get, I guess, I mean, like, if, like particular way people use beaches differently today, but like it, if I'm swimming in a swimming pool to do laps for exercise, yeah. I'm definitely going to wear budgie smugglers. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to jump in a pair of board shorts. Um, if I going to the beach, I might like to wear board shorts just if I'm hanging around. Like, yeah. you know, and I'm not going to wear it to the knees. I wear something a bit shorter than that. But if I'm going, but the way we use beaches now, particularly during the COVID period, is we tend to go for a run and we're allowed to go for the, take our shorts off after the yeah. run and go for a swim. Yeah. I'm not going to go swimming in the shorts that I just ran in because I want to put them back on so I can go home dry. Gotcha. And I probably would take, pull my shorts off, quickly run into the, into the water and put a, just run in with a, a pair of budgie smugglers on just yeah. to, just have the quick swim. Yeah. Just to get wet, cool down from my run. It's funny, you know, you might actually roll this business into not having to worry about changing people's attitude towards wearing budget smugglers relative to sh- shorts yeah, because it just becomes much more practical to have a pair on because of the way we can use beaches for the future, That's I reckon. It. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of the rugby players or um, a lot of the, the footballers wear them because they're comfortable, very comfortable to play in. One lucky kind of thing that happened. So early on I thought about it. I had a background in life-saving and I thought about it as a product just to swim in, but – you know, notice that a lot of footballers wear it and, and I used to wear it when I was playing and we went to, um, we went to try and get into all the swimming pools and like one of the lessons I've sort of learned is, is to not compete. And so I tried to get into all the swimming pools, but you know, they're not giving that away. They've got contracts locked up and sponsorship arrangements and I wasn't getting anywhere. And so that's why we've sort of focused more on non, non-water sports but one of the decisions we made was around the fabric that we use. So the fabric that's the most chlorine resistant isn't super comfortable to play in, whereas the fabric we've gone on still very chlorine resistant, but it's got almost like a like a porcelain kind of finish to it, and so it's comfortable to play in. So that's that was a happy and it gives you support too. I mean, gives you support, locks you in. A blade's got to have support. If your pants, if someone grabs them, they stay on. You might yeah, lose yeah. your shorts, but you, you've got these on. Um, hopefully. And uh, sorry, the other thing was that it, after the game, you got to jump in the, the showers and a lot of places now will have an ice bath yeah. as well. So you can nude up in the shower, but nuding up in an ice bath is- It's not on. Is, is unflattering and unhygienic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. Uh, the, the ice bath has, you know, and that's, that's kind of common now, whereas 20 years ago, there wasn't an ice bath in a typical- that's, and, In fact, ice baths in, in the- in the better teams are really important from a recovery point of view. They, and they pretty much all do it. Exactly. Whether you've got an injury or not. Mm. So where's your plans from here? So where are you going good, with all this? Good question. So four years ago, we uh, set up a website in the UK. So the focus was to, for that to be a base for the sort of UK and Europe. I just finished up with AIM. So I ended up working with AIM for eight years. So I didn't, I'd actually never worked on budget day to day for those first eight years. I had, I was full-time with, with AIM, but by that stage, we had about four staff at Budgie Smuggler here, and they'd been running it all the time anyway. So, you know, it just would have been weird if I started turning up telling everyone what to do. That They are, uh, Brendan, my brother Nathan, Jared, they had it sorted. So I was like, well, what's the market we can grow, grow to? And uh, the UK was our, our biggest overseas selling place. The other thought was the US, but they don't really get it. 
Nah. Uh, one, more conservative. They are, they are definitely more conservative. And the human, like, what's well, a budgie smuggler? It's like, oh, it's, a, it's like you're hiding. What's a, sm- a budgie? A small, it's like a small bird. And they're like, why would you choose a small bird? <laughs> That's like, it's kind of self-deprecating. Yeah, yeah. Like I, one person said to me, that is. Well, they were an albatross smuggler. <laughs> one person said to me, that is the st- that is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks. So America wasn't looking as bright for us. Um, so at the moment we've got team of four in the UK um, and then France is kind of the next area that we're focusing. So this week we're launching a French website. My brother's doing that. He s- speaks no French, but we have started um, we have started French lessons and that's one thing that I think is really important is like, I physically went to England for the four years because you got to understand the people there. It was just, I was just on my own. So I just went around and met as many people who were into smuggling. I'd travel to the different sporting clubs, go and have beers um, with like the Australian in the team and then say, you know, who else is in the, in the club that likes smugglers? And, you know, they get three or four of us. We'd go and have a coffee or a beer. So that's important to me. So now France is the, the next focus. Product-wise, I don't think it's going to shift a whole lot, um, but probably just reshoring the the last sort of items. So we found a sock manufacturer um, that's going to make Australian woolen socks in the kind of similar similar prints and then the underwear as well. well we're running out of time, but I mean, I give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question. I've been asking you all the questions. What question you got for me? You got one? Yeah, I do. So I was uh, having a feed with some of the boys the uh, other night and I was speaking, speaking about budgie smuggler and said, you know, we've done 10 years at this rate of growth, you know, 50, 60%. And I was like, it's getting a bit harder to do now. The next 10, we're looking at sort of 20 to 40. And this year we were at 40 and we went down to minus 40. <laughs> now we're back to 40. And so I said, you know, this next 10 years, looking at 20 to 40%. And one of them, one of the boys, Oscar went, <laughs> And nearly spat out his drink and said, weak as piss, Adam. Uh, like, sorry. And he said, that is weak as piss, mate. You can go harder than this. And so I guess my question to you is, am I, am I on a trajectory of, that seems like a sensible but firm enough growth rate or am I weak as piss and should I be uh, looking to go a bit more aggressively? And if so, where would you see the opportunity that to maybe go hardest at? Um, I don't think, I don't think it was weak as piss. I mean, I obviously as the denominator increases, in other words, as you become more successful, the percentage growth, in other words, the change in the numerator has to be less, generally speaking, yeah. in a sensible way, mathematically. Okay. Yeah. So Oscar's not thinking mathematically. Oscar's thinking um, emotionally and or movement-wise. He's saying this is a great product mm. and if you have a great product and everybody wants it, these things always outperform what is mathematically probable. Yeah. So if I was to give you an opinion on what Oscar said, I'd ha- I would say to you then you're going to have to have something that's going to actually take your products and or, or any one of the products to turn it into an emotional buy. Mm-hmm. You know, I must have. Yeah. It's a must have thing. And I quite like the concept of it. Um, but I think you need to tell the story more. 
Mm-hmm. And my gut feeling is that in order to get that emotional non-mathematical increase, in other words, the non-probable growth, yeah. which is what Oscar's talking about as opposed to what you're talking about, yeah. um, you need to be a lot more aggressive in terms of the story you're telling. Because I think you've got a good story. Yeah, like this is actually uh, the second. I spoke to the Batuta lads the other day, but yeah. I think it's the second interview well, I've done. Well, the Batuta guys tw- are great. In 12 years. Oh, well, no, so, I think and I, my gut feeling is this is not your regular gig. This is not really how you roll. No, uh, no I've kind of been a uh, – You're pretty chilled. Not at the, not, not at the forefront uh, sort of banging the drum, but – but that's, I think that's – I mean, you've got your dudes and your cousin, your brothers and all that sort of stuff who are running the business. They're managing it. I've run, sure it, run out of relatives. They're, they're all looking after, okay? <laughs> they're, 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 they're good set of steady hands, trustworthy, reliable, experienced. But I think you need to do some radical shit. I mean, uh, I mean, don't, don't forget, you know, who you bought this from, Lockie Harris. Mm. Um, and Lockie's done – I mean, that name, Budgie Smuggler, is typical of Lockie Harris. Mm. Um, and they are brilliant with these sorts of things. Mm. I think you just have to get that sort of, I don't mean aggressive, um, much, much more active yep. branding out there. And I don't I don't read it. I don't see it. It doesn't come and hit me. I mean, I haven't seen anything. I haven't been hit up on Instagram. I haven't seen anything on Facebook. I mean, I don't follow you, but I haven't been uh, targeted. Yep. I haven't been targeted through Google Ads. Nothing's come my way. Cool. And I think if you were to get this non-mathematical greater than probable growth, yep. which Oscar's talking about, I think you need to mm. tell the compelling story. Sure. And I think you're compelling. I think you've got a good story. Yeah. But I think you need to tell the story much more and, and, and you need to be out there. Yep. I'd like to see a lot more risk-taking. I mean, you need to do, you know, maybe get George out there today with a pair of, a pair of them on and, uh, and, uh, or turn up to one of his brothers, Matt Rose's uh, boxing events and sit there with his budgies on for a minute and just get the cameras. Up. You need to do some mad shit. Yeah. Because budgie smugglers is about mad people, mm-hmm. mad shit. Or maybe you need to run a, um, a program on Instagram or one of those places, Facebook, saying who can do the maddest fucking shit with my budgies on, and we're, we're going to give them twenty five thousand dollars. I don't know some number. Yeah. You're going to get some fucking sponsored freaks. by the mentor. Totally, <laughs> but you're going to get you're going to get some freaks doing some stuff. Okay, yeah. you need to get some freaky stuff. You know, like especially during this COVID period, if you can do something really clever and out there and something that's heartwarming and Australian. That actually makes us smile because there's not enough around. There's not enough things around at the moment that's making us smile. Yep, and laugh and talk about. Yep, and I just think you need some of that. That's my gut feeling to oh. get Oscar's outcome because you need to kick it off. You know, this is Australia. We're Australians, and that's that's the difference between the rest of the Americans, especially. Yeah, we do mad shit. Yeah, no, we've had a we've had a bit of experience with that. We once had nine guys arrested in Malaysia, so I'll try not to. But replicate, we don't want to because you'll end up in, replicate that, that one. You might never get out of jail over there. But but I mean, it'd be just something mad. Like I don't know. And there's plenty of mad bastards around. You know, I mean, we're we're not short of mad bastards. But it'd be good if that's a name. Like yeah. It's got George Rose on it or something like that. Yeah. No. I mean, we do we do a bit of that sort of stuff. But I think I can. Uh, I'm going to see take, get promoted. Take that on board and um, just just. Turn up the uh, the aggression. Uh, you turn it up. You know, why just, don't you, just a wee bit. Because that's – and then you need to go with it, you know, and really push it hard and be and put a bit of budget behind it. You know, you need to have a few – you don't have to spend a lot of money online these days, but make sure you get it out to as many places as possible. And uh, and, I, and I, I'm going to go and follow you guys on Instagram now. But yeah. talk to the people. Yeah. Just don't talk to your normal mates. Go and just reach out other places. I mean, one of the things is you've reached out to come here. Yeah. And you're on this show, and yeah, this is going to get a lot of people. 
more of this? Well, like, yeah, been away, been away in the UK. We've got it going there. And then I guess I feel I'm back in Australia now, ready to hit the next. Uh... Imagine if Paul Hogan wore them. <laughs> that would go global. <laughs> I mean, you just never know. And by the way, you just that's not never a budgie. actually know. Yeah, that's an albatross. <laughs> you just never know, right? Give it a crack. Cool. Really nice to see you. Nice to meet you. I love the idea. It's, uh, I love the fact that Australian, I love the fact that it's made here in Australia. And you've actually stayed true to your name and true to your brand. That's cool. Thank and uh, I, I really appreciate the Roosters uh, budgie smugglers. And I'll, I will wear them. I'm not sure if I put them on my Instagram because uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I will. But uh, I definitely will wear them. And you might just be able to sneak a photograph of me walking down Bondi Beach with them. Good, good man. Appreciate it. All the best. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.